just uh, Matthew and I this week for Clean Tech Talk. Uh, Kyle's uh, pulled away by other work. Um, this so so this episode we're gonna just talk about uh, interesting new new research from Mark Descartes at Simon Fraser University, uh, highlighting the the usefulness of mandates and smart regulation versus carbon taxes, uh, as well as Tesla's recent. Um, uh, financials call and interesting key findings from that. Matthew, can you get us started? Sure. Thanks, Zachary. So this is a uh, publication or a paper by Mark Jacquard, a professor, uh, environmental economist at the local university here in Vancouver, uh, Simon Fraser University. His uh, research group was involved in the formulation or um, the development of uh, BC's pioneering carbon tax many years ago. And his sort of surprising take is that the best way to raise the price on carbon in a politically viable way, in a way where politicians can reasonably expect to be reelected, you know, which is important because, you know, you're you're not going to get public policy which gets politicians fired, is that uh even though carbon taxes are necessary, uh they are unpalatable and different uh, policy measures, uh, particularly fuel switching, in the case of switching away from coal, mandating you get rid of coal, can have the same emissions reduction impact as an astronomically high carbon tax. So what he did is... Astronomically high is a scientific term, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's very, very scientific. It's a, uh, uh, yes, very scientific so, so what uh, what we'll do first is I'll I'll go through the the BC carbon tax, which is currently set at about thirty Canadian dollars per ton of CO two, and in terms of gasoline, that's about seven cents per liter, or I think on the order of about twenty twenty six maybe uh, cents per gallon, uh, and that's for thirty dollars per ton. Uh, interestingly, the drop Canadian in, dollars. In, Canadian, sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, in, in American, it'd be in American dollars. So I believe. I, and unfortunately, the Canadian dollar has taken a bit of a hit lately. Oh, the Canadian peso, yes, that's that's one of our prides and joys. It's it's multicolored money, uh, the Defen dollar, as they used to call it, because it's worth less than a full dollar. Uh, the so there, assuming there's been maybe a two dollar per gallon decrease in the uh, price of gasoline across the states, that would be equivalent. You know, if you raised it back another two dollars uh, per gallon, that would be the equivalent of I think roughly a two hundred dollar per ton uh, CO two tax, carbon tax. And I think the fact that there's a two hundred dollars attached to that that kind of scares people off. If you said it was a um, twenty cent per kiloton carbon tax, maybe people would be kind of, okay, that's, that's not too bad, you know, I, I can I'd buy into that. But for, for various reasons, it would be very difficult, except perhaps in Scandinavian countries, for governments to say, we've never taxed carbon before, we're going to get serious about it, we need to get to the $100 plus level uh, of carbon tax per ton CO2 to effect behavioral change and to transition our economies. Very tough sell. What Mark Jacquard's group determined was that uh, when the province of Ontario mandated that coal use be phased out, the resulting decrease in emissions from fuel switching, you know, somewhat natural gas, some renewables, you know, some more nuclear, that had the same 
emissions reductions as a roughly $100 per ton carbon tax. So at one stroke, you know, uh, ban, you know banning or uh, eliminating coal, it's, it's much more politically palatable. And by doing that, you get all the benefits uh, for that sector of the economy of $100 per ton carbon tax, the kind of level that we need to make our transition quickly. You get all those benefits without the big, the big red target on your back if you're a politician in terms of re-election campaigns. Uh, in addition, there was in, in British Columbia a decision several years ago, about 10 years ago, that the local utility monopoly would have to shut down its gas and you know, very small coal plants. And again, uh, this had the impact of roughly $100 per tonne of a of a carbon tax this in terms of the emissions drop and uh, to put this in perspective this decision to cancel two uh, private coal plants and this little gas plant reduced emissions projected emissions for 2020 by about 15 megatons and our carbon tax you know despite the fact that it's you know pretty expensive by north american terms is only expected to reduce emissions by about 5 megatons per year by that point so it's a really interesting kind of a backdoor way to price carbon or get the benefits of pricing carbon without actually um, using the word tax, which is, I think, very appealing. It, it certainly has changed my perspective on, on how I think about, say, the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign and these other efforts to, to mandate fuel switching, because suddenly I see that, you know, it's... We do need a carbon tax that's necessary, but maybe not um, uh, it's maybe not sufficient to obtain the behavioral change that we need in a politically viable way. But maybe if we can use these mandated approaches like like uh, ZEV and PZEV, uh, partial zero emission vehicle requirements, we can we can effect the kind of fuel switching and emissions reductions that we need in a more politically viable way. It's it's very encouraging. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what policy suggestions uh, emerge as the academic community uh, wrestles with this uh, these findings more. Yeah, this is a really eye-opening and interesting study for me uh, as well. Uh, like you, you know, and many other people, I assume that you know the carbon tax was basically the only solution that would really work uh, that could really get us out of this crisis um, so it's interesting to see that you know similar uh, that mandates and and strong regulatory policies can have a basically pretty strong uh, effect strong enough to to really create the change we need presumably of course it would have to be implemented on quite a broad scale which mm -hmm. is is part of the challenge um, uh, you know it's this would this would have to happen across across the world, not just in a few regions. So, so I guess I guess that's a real challenge that's that's faced. Um, but just the idea that that you know this is a more palpable way to to address to, to get policy a strong policy to address global warming is quite interesting. I mean, uh, like you said, I mean the idea of a strong carbon tax is great to those of us who know how bad the crisis is um, and you know it can be even fine economically if you use tax and dividend approach where people get money back um, so they're not hurt by the tax but but selling that to the general public who is quite you know uneducated and very opinionated about taxes uh, I, mean, I mean just look at what we're seeing in the GOP primaries right right now it's pretty 
pretty depressing. But um, you know, when when could we ever move forward enough as a society where we could implement a one hundred, two hundred dollar carbon tax? That's that's a really tough question. So, in the meantime, you know, people if people are really opposed to pollution as they are and really supportive of clean energy um, as they are, then then the you know implementing strong regulations uh, should should be a good option. Uh, of course, we're seeing in the, the quite confusing backwards extremist country of the United States, uh, big pushback to the clean power plan, which is uh, along the lines of what, what we're talking about. Um, but I, I don't see how long this extremism can last in the country. I hope not that long. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this this looks quite promising. I'm excited excited by this research. Uh, I'm curious to see um, see more like it. Yeah, I guess uh, just to reiterate for for me, I was you might say monomaniacally obsessed with the idea that a carbon tax would solve everything, and it will. And I guess the uh, maybe what this this study does is it tells me that um, we need the price on carbon, or we need to create the behaviors that would be equivalent as if we did have a massive price on carbon. But yeah, very, uh, very encouraging and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what percolates out of this going forward. Jumping into uh, Tesla, the Tesla story. So Tesla's uh, on, on its recent financials conference call had a number of really exciting uh, financials highlights. Uh, so one was that uh, Cash flow from core operations were strongly positive in quarter four, uh, which is a, a huge difference compared to previous quarters. That is leading into a pretty dramatic shift for the company financials-wise, where it's uh, it's expecting to hit net cash flow positive uh, for the uh, beginning in March and then for the remainder of the year, and then uh, planning for. It's expecting two full year 2016 non-GAAP profitability and GAAP profitability in quarter uh, four of 2016. So basically, it's making a big turnaround where all of that investment in the Model X, uh, ramping up of production capacity, uh, etc., is going to pay back. And also, in through through all this strong cash flow from the Model S, and Model X. Uh, will actually fund all of Tesla's operations, including investments in uh, gigafactory scaling up, scaling up of service centers and sales centers, etc., uh, which is pretty stunning. I mean, that's that's just tremendous amount of cash flow. The only uh, money it needs to be borrowing is basically from asset-based lending, where it's um, uh, borrowing money based on the, the value of assets it has on hand. So, so that's exciting. Uh, and then another big story uh, from the call or from the report was that Tesla now dominates the large luxury car market in the United States, even though Tesla actually considers its Model S a performance sedan, not a luxury sedan. Um, so all of the other large luxury cars lost lost you know sale lost market share, but also their sales went down from 2014 to 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tesla Model S sales, meanwhile, jumped 51%, and uh, in 2015, it accounted for 
for about twenty, about a quarter of the large luxury car market, uh, more than any other car, more than the Mercedes-Benz S-Class, which has historically dominated the market, and even more than, uh, even if you combine the BMW 7 Series and 6 Series, or the Audi A7 and A8, uh, Tesla's still far, far ahead of them. Um, so just wiping the floor with in, in that in that segment, uh, and c- quarter four two thousand fifteen compared to quarter four two thousand fourteen, Tesla saw a thirty five percent increase in Tesla Model S orders. So it's showing that demand even has has risen for this car. But you know the really exciting thing overall is just that that uh, it's growing so fast while uh, becoming cash flow net cash flow positive. Uh, it's basically been doubling sales every year, um, or even more, uh, and and expects similar in 2016 and 2013. Saw 25,000 sales. 2014, uh, uh, sorry, this is doubling cumul- cumulative Model S uh, and X uh, vehicles on the road. So 2013, they saw, they had 25,000 on the road. 2014, 57,000. 2015, 107,000. And 2016 is expected uh, to have uh, 187 to 197,000 Teslas on the road by the end of the year. Uh, but what are what are your thoughts, uh, Matthew? Sure. Now I should maybe preface uh, by noting that uh, I only know enough to know that uh, I'm I don't know enough about accounting to know really how how you know, what buckets money gets put in and so on and so forth. Uh, so a lot of the financials, especially as companies uh, determine on, you know, uh, maybe financial metrics that are more appropriate for newer business models versus older business models, I can't speak to. Uh, but I guess the the general sort of 50,000 foot perspective that I had uh, uh, coming out of this is, is very seems very positive. Uh, it does seem that there's a very big opportunity for upside on Tesla, even in the home market, the U.S., which, as you noted, uh, they're, they're just dominating the luxury, large vehicle segment, uh, because they still don't have the ability to sell directly in a number of states. So I could imagine that you know there's, there's almost nothing more American than being able to you know, sell your product to consumers without interference from regulation. So I could imagine that that would be another big opportunity for upside in addition to the fact that now we have the Model X as well as the Model S. Uh, and the, the biggest risk that I would see from a very large, large, uh, you know, very high up perspective is that if there is some sort of an economic downturn, I have read, and I'll get for the show notes, uh, that luxury car sales do tend to uh, drop somewhat as people maybe get, uh, they decide to drive their existing vehicles longer or some such thing. Uh, this would result in a situation where, whereas uh, one can be very comfortable in Tesla, the business, uh, they they certainly have captured a lot of mind share. They're a leader in the large um, luxury vehicle segment. I'm sure they'll be a leader soon in the luxury SUV segment. Uh, it is possible that, you know, their stock price uh, might go, you know, might go up a bunch, might go down a bunch, might stay kind of flat. Uh, it's a bit like when you get when you get a beer somewhere, you could have no froth or a lot of froth, a lot of head on the top. But unlike beer, stocks can also have negative froth, which uh, which results in them being mispriced relative there to their intrinsic value. So yeah, I guess uh, just you know speaking from my own uh, non-accounting background, but having again having spoken to enough accountants to know that 
I would need to get an accounting degree to to fully be able to appreciate the subtleties involved. Uh, I guess, uh, for for example, um, you know, Tesla had noted that its profit margin was down somewhat, but then is that really relevant? Because a lot of those uh, vehicles that would have reduced the profit margin would have probably been sort of older loaner vehicles that they're clearing out because they have you know new autopilot vehicles coming in. That's that's probably a one-time thing. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, maybe if they make the next big, uh, big leap in terms of, you know, deploying sensors, maybe two years from now, they have another, another sort of clear out of the of the prior generation stuff. And right now, as Model X gets ramps up, you know, the profit margins are expected to grow again. Right. And, and that's, and that's what they've said, uh, uh, that the, the Tesla Model X, as, it'll, uh, as it ramps up, should increase their profit margins. But again, I guess not knowing which apples to compare with which apples is you know, kind, of, kind of challenging. I, I, I was uh, enthused or encouraged to hear that I think Elon had said that they would be cash flow positive by, by a cash flow metric by the end of next month, which is the end of March. And part of me wonders, like, does that, like, I don't know. Do customer deposits count as cash flow? Because it does up your cash balance, but it's not necessarily a business. Um, again, this is all to reiterate that uh, I know only enough to know that I don't know. <laughs> well, there's another story for all of us, huh? Yeah, it's 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 just an interesting uh, story to follow and watch and, and tease, try to tease out the details as you can. But, uh, I mean, generally speaking, just to see that Tesla has... Uh, followed the disruptive innovation curve, the S curve, quite quite closely for the large uh, luxury car market. Um, is quite is really exciting and promising. I mean, it, it's basically uh, gone. You know, followed that very closely. And now is in the you know early majority phase or or whatnot of twenty five percent of the market. Um, competing as all all the cars in that market uh, in general. Um, so, so you know, the I guess the the excitement, the idea now is that the Tesla Model Three, um, if it lives up to expectations, will do the same in the small luxury car market, the the BMW Three Series, Audi A Four Series, uh, you know, market. That's that's really that's going to be something to see if it happens in the same vein as as the Model S taking over. Uh, the large luxury car market, and of course the Model X taking over, you know, the large luxury SUV market. So uh, you know, it could be quite a quite an interesting few years. Uh, what are your thoughts, Matthew? One thing I would be very interested in, and perhaps we'll be able to to get this information when we have the uh, I think the California New Car Dealers uh, Association um, breaks down car sales in California. I'd be interested to know how the um, how the uh, Tesla sales have increased year over year in California versus the rest of the states. And again, this relates to my uh, earlier comment that Teslas really aren't available uh, as much in all states. And I think Elon has even mentioned that they have an interest in growing their market in the Northeast. Uh, so uh, I guess that that is one piece of information I would find interesting. I do have uh, have high hopes for the Model 3 uh, for the unveiling at the end of the quarter. I guess I don't want to, uh, knowing that I'll probably be wrong, I don't want to put in you know too much of a prognostication, but I can I can imagine that there would be a very healthy number of people who would uh, put down deposits, and then like myself, there would be a, a number of people who would be 
uh, even more people would be willing to uh, to put down deposits or reservations once they've had a chance to look at the vehicle in the flesh or in the in the sheet metal, as it were, uh, because. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, a lot the Tesla has a great advantage of uh, enthusiastic supporters and customers who are willing to put money down sight unseen. And then once the uh, once you actually are able to show the product itself, well, a good product will sell itself. And therefore, you could expect that uh, reservations and other bookings will rise as uh, as the time goes on, as it percolates into the uh, into the broader uh, broader awareness of the consumer. So, yeah, very very exciting uh, thing to happen in about um, what six weeks time now. And then one other one other thing from the uh, call that was interesting was uh, Elon Musk highlighted how much reliability. Of the Tesla Model S had improved, uh, noting that there had been, uh, um, where's the quote here? The cost of first year repair claims on cars produced in 2015 was about half the level of cars produced in 2014 and about one quarter the level of cars produced in 2012. So there's been dramatic, and actually on the call, uh, Elon said dramatic uh, reliability improvements um, for the Tesla Model S, which is good uh, considering. Uh, this the study you recently conducted an article you wrote and hopefully that that will uh, show itself in future data collected by the by plug in America and others and consumer reports etc yes I, I I hope to see those uh well I expect that to see those trends uh, reflected in any any data that goes forward I could imagine that um, year over year you know consumer reports should gradually show that the uh, the long term reliability of Tesla's uh, improves. They will have started with a smaller data set of the very early vehicles, but um, you know, as I think Consumer Reports' main reliability, long-term reliability numbers are based on a three-year ownership. So, especially as soon as we get to the uh, 2017 timeframe, when those improved 2014 vehicles are out there, and especially in 2018, when the 2015 vehicles have reached three years of hopefully trouble-free uh, life, then that could give a further boost to the big wave of momentum that the uh, the Model 3 will get as it scales up its production. So yes, uh, things things are sort of dovetailing in a very promising way. It's it's just a matter of well, it's not really just a matter of execution. It's a matter of execution, and uh, Tesla has all the Tesla the business has all the all the uh, seems to be doing all the right things, and uh, one can hope that uh, they're able to you know stay focused and and not try to do anything fancy with the Model Three. There was the comment that. They got a little bit too aggressive in what they wanted to do for the Model X. Uh, it would be great to have a, a Model 3 with, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent uh, the same parts count as the Model S, because then, sorry, the Model 3 having this 50 to 70, you know, even more percent of the same parts count as the Model S, because once you fix the reliability problem, you don't ever have to worry about it again. And whenever you have a new part, there's always the risk that, you know, it turns into the one niggly thing that causes you headaches, uh, you know, for, for months on, on end. So, yeah, looking very forward to their take on a, on a still upscale, but uh, uh, I guess, I guess entry-level luxury sedan uh, product, uh, perhaps with the possibility of a, of a easier to ramp up, you know, crossover platform option subsequently, but don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Just uh, let's get a good sedan, and then and then uh, have a nice, easy transition into a 
you know, a lightly adapted crossover and the other kinds of vehicles you can do off one platform. And I think it is useful to uh, to learn one's lessons early, because uh, uh, as you grow in a, in a business or you know grow in responsibilities or whatnot, then your expen- your mistakes become ever ever more expensive. So in a way, it could be a very good thing that uh, Tesla had its experience of overreaching with a Model X, because you know that's containable. It's it is a luxury vehicle, but the volumes are small enough. And the 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 vehicle is uh, so far above everything else that uh, consumers would probably be able to forgive some early, early teething problems. It would be very uh, much worse if they kind of got overconfident with a Model Three kind of vehicle with much higher production targets, because then the headaches get just all the more intense. So there is a there is an advantage to to learning from one's mistakes early, so that you don't overreach. At a bigger stage, at a more uh, more um, costly phase. Yes, and it seemed like uh, Tesla really learned its lesson with the Model X, and um, uh, that was expressed. Uh, I mean, JB Strobel and Elon Musk both both expressed that very clearly on the call. How they were because of how complicated the Model X had gotten, and how how that presented challenges for manufacturing. They were very intent on making. The Model Three, a much uh, uh, simpler model, and, and you know, not have not run into such problems. So, let's hope that that ends up not being an issue at all for a Model Three. Of course, there's always issues with a new car, and they'll have to work through those. But but uh, it looks like they really actually gained a lot of uh, good experience from the Model X and won't repeat any mistakes that they might have made with it. Uh, but yep. Yeah. Uh, thanks for chatting, Matthew. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And check in next week to get your electric fix. Bye.